This is usually called the Monday Mess Hall here on Views in the Crow's Nest, but today is not Monday. So we, in order to keep the initials of MMH in the title, are calling this the Midweek Mess Hall. This go-round. All right. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Mess Hall here on the Views from the Crow's Nest podcast by Fisher Jordan. Fisher Jordan is a New York-based strategy consulting thought leadership and outsourcing firm helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. Our approach is to provide decision makers in financial services and healthcare with clear strategies backed by analytics and enabled by tailored technology solutions. You can find out more about our approach to delivering client value at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. If you are a first-time listener to this podcast, let me give you the rundown in brief. This podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, but we do a couple of different types of episodes here on this podcast. This episode is part of what we usually call the Monday Mess Hall, but as I've already mentioned, this is the midweek mess hall. We should just call it the mess hall and just get rid of any sort of confusion. <laughs> In any case, our other episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the mess hall to be a little more off the cuff while also focusing more on current events, maybe some hot button topics that are even more specific than the trends that we discuss in our longer form episodes. And there's also a greater degree of maybe time sensitivity to the topics that we are covering on the mess hall. We do give ourselves a few hours to research the topics that we select ahead of time. Although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point here on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. My name is Nathan Johnson. You can think of me as the host of this podcast, although I do prefer to call myself the question asker, just because host is a little bit more formal than what I see myself as. Joining me today are Fisher Jordan managing partners Boaz Salik and Neat Shaw, and we've got thoughts today. Thoughts on new technologies, mostly. First up, for our quick bite, we talk a little bit about a biotech company running experiments with GMO mosquitoes and what effect that might have on ecosystems where those are introduced. If you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, you might have an idea where we go with that discussion. We go a little deeper with some thoughts on the nosedive in the crypto world on May 12th, as well as riffing a little bit on our overall outlook for crypto as a whole. And wrapping it up with some thoughts on whether or not permanent bans as opposed to temporary bans as a repercussion for violating terms of use on social media platforms makes sense strategically. That's enough of all the setup. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Well, we are once again back for a partners-only discussion here on a midweek mess hall episode. Today, we're going to dive into a handful of topics. Some of them are current events that uh, listeners have probably been familiar with, and at least one of them is one that uh, was news to me, that uh, most is just an opportunity to kind of riff on a new idea here and that it will actually be our first topic which is our our quick take here there's an interesting topic about a uk-based biotech company called oxitec um, gearing up for summer with an experiment involving gmo mosquitoes so they gave these mosquitoes a special gene that will only produce male offspring the intended outcome is to reduce harmful mosquito-borne illnesses 
by reducing the overall population of the insect. As always, we'll be referencing or linking uh, articles that kind of gave us the, the jump off ideas for this in the show notes. I have a particular point of view on this. I want us to talk about, first of all, just reactions to that idea and maybe a few a few upsides and downsides that we can see from our own vantage points. So what do you two think about that? This article has been uh, a very interesting one. And, and I, I feel like I read about it a while ago as well. I think, you know, they first started in Brazil. And, you know, at first, my first sort of thought when I heard about this was this is like that Jurassic Park uh, comment, you know, where that scientist Ian Malcolm you know, says nature finds a way. Um, so, and he was obviously against the idea of, you know, genetically modifying anything. Um, so that was kind of like my gut reaction to it. Like when I, when I um, read, read about this, but then, you know, when I, when I, you know, thought about it a little bit more, firstly, it looks like they're only um, targeting this towards one type of mosquito, right? Which is, which represents a relatively small proportion of the overall mosquito population. Um, so, you know, hopefully what that means is that it won't really affect the ecosystem, uh, in a big way. Also, what I'm guessing is that, okay, in a particular area, they, they, um, they release these, uh, genetically modified mosquitoes and their, their offspring is all male, right? Which means that by definition, this population will end up collapsing right in that particular area so probably what that means is that even from a geographical perspective it's probably not going to spread very far so it, to me it seems like it'll be relatively innocuous but who knows you know this is a very complex ecosystem yeah i, I agree with you uh, the whole idea of unintended consequences you know we hear the the word a lot but for some reason, it never really crops up as a serious consideration when deploying new technologies. You know, so you, you can think of, um, you know, when you, you look, look historically at some of the, the big like new technologies that were introduced throughout history, whether it's different types of drugs, different types of treatments, technologies like electricity or the car, et cetera. For some reason, the word should never really enters the discussion. The only question <laughs> is, can or can't we deploy yeah. it? build it and deploy it and then you know usually the, there's you know if you look historically there are usually a few iterations that that don't work out so well for us and then eventually we figure out how to harness it you know in a way that's productive so i wouldn't be at all surprised if that was the case with this type of technology as well yeah i think that's a good take and i appreciate your your perspective balancing kind of what's the actual scope of this going to be neat where you kind of pointed out and i think that maybe it's the influence of fiction you know batman villains like dumping stuff into the water supply and it, it like somehow makes you think that this is going to impact like the entire world the entire world's water supply or something like when in fact like where it's actually being deployed is just like a a very small it, they're they're treating it like a controlled experiment right it's not just yeah we decided to <laughs> to release these things into the wild and just see what happens like your your comments about it being kind of constrained to a, a particular geographic region to see if it works um and also the fact that it's only or it's only affecting a particular species of mosquito rather than just like 
all of mosquito kind are now subject yeah. subjected to this, right? So that's that's helpful. And of course, Boaz, with your your remark, I I'm gonna tie back in the the Jurassic Park reference. We were so so preoccupied with whether or not we could, we never stopped to ask if we should. I paraphrase the line, I think, but I believe that was the same the same scientist that Neat referenced, yeah. like said so says something to that effect, right? It actually kind of brings to, I don't know if there's any correlation here or not, but there's actually this other technology right now that's that's being, um, I don't know if you'd say seriously discussed, but actively discussed. It's unrelated to, to biology and it's called geoengineering, which is this idea of like blocking out, like putting some aerosols in the air to block out some of the sun's rays, to kind of reflect them back into space so that, you know, kind of mitigate the effect of global warming. So I think, you know, same thing, like looks good on paper, probably has a million unintended consequences that we haven't even begun to fathom. You know, is that going to stop us from trying it? Probably not at some point. But uh, that's kind of the nature of the human species, I think, is to take that step forward. And then, you know, if you get in trouble, then figure out a different way to take the step forward. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate the ingenuity of the human species and the the looking for technological solutions to, to problems or the, the comment that could be discussed further offline. Uh, my perspective generally is like, usually the systems that we're messing with when we do things like this are unfathomably complex. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, like diving into this, this machine, you know that you want it to like do something and you're just kind of in there messing around with the internal mechanisms and you're like hey it gave me the outcome i want okay but what else what did you do <laughs> what what happened in there um, <laughs> and what's going to happen that's that's usually my perspective uh whether that be with with ecosystems or yeah the geoengineering uh example is a good one too so I suppose we could keep an eye on Oxitec and and see where that goes. And that's uh, some scary ramifications for this t technology when you think about it. So you can say, well, of course this this would be fine for mosquitoes because they're harmful. But what if you take a a species that that is necessary for life, like take the the honeybee for example? Mm. Um, what if, God forbid, like what if some terrorists got their hands on this technology and used it to take out a species like that? So there are all sorts of scenarios that kind of come to mind with this stuff. Wasn't this the, the whole premise for um, Galapagos by Vonnegut? Like didn't, wasn't that the exact same reason why the entire human species got wiped out in that book? I kind of vaguely remember that being the same thing. I haven't read much Vonnegut. This is Galapagos? Yeah. That's a funny book. I remember he had that one about that that new variation of ice that crystallizes at normal temperatures, and they were trying to prevent it from being dropped into the ocean because it'll it would like freeze over <laughs> the world's ocean. So get off the podcast and go read Galapagos. That's the idea. Keeping an eye on the time, I really want to talk a little bit about our main topic here today, our big dig, as we sometimes call it. Just setting the scene last week on the 12th of May, there's a huge uh, shakeup in the world of crypto. I think that you get a different number depending on which which news source you get this from. But the 
the close number is about $200 billion disappeared from the cryptocurrency market uh, last Thursday, um, in part due to the crash of at least one stable coin, which was Terra USD. And there's connection there with uh, you. You see, like people talk about like Luna, and there like there's there are coins that are running on these different blockchain technologies. So there was basically like a, a problem with the technology that led to the, the collapse of this coin, and then there was a huge uh, drop in the crypto market. We've circled up on on crypto periodically here, just as the technology continues to develop. What I want us to talk about is, you know, crypto has been a bit of a gold rush, maybe a wild west for a while now. Do we see events like what happened last Thursday as kind of helping the strong survive? Um, we wrote an article about the way that fintechs kind of weathered or didn't weather uh, the COVID crisis. Where, and, you know, the ones that kind of made it through, it was because they did some specific things. Uh, we even talked about that some with uh, Nara Nayak here on this same podcast. So do you see this as kind of like the best are going to rise to the top? Or do we see it as like a race to the bottom for everybody? Um, yeah, just give me your reactions to, to the news story, um, to the topic. What's going through your heads right now? You know, Nathan, honestly, I don't understand crypto. Nobody's really been able to explain it to me in a way that I can understand. And, and yet, you know, I see like thousands of people around me investing in it, right? Like even like people who know very little about investing in general are still investing in crypto, even in India around me, right? So that kind of leads me to believe that there is definitely some element of a bubble here, probably a substantial element. So I do expect these kind of events to keep happening because it's like, if you don't understand what you're investing in, then at the first fright you know it's it's very easy to just completely you know pull pull all the chips off the table right so i do see that happening very often now if it's i i don't know enough about this space to really predict that is this the beginning of the end for crypto or not my gut feel is that you don't know but just simply because it's become so widespread and there are so many institutions now involved in it that i don't see it disappearing immediately so that's my high-level take on what's happening. Yeah, obviously the the Terra crash or the, the Luna crash, I guess they're, they're probably related, and the obviously the drop in the rest of the crypto markets kind of, I think, apparently coincided. But I think in general, when you look at it more closely, the big cryptos like you know the Bitcoins or Ethereum's of the world, um, they generally don't don't get impacted by or impacted significantly by events in, in kind of these smaller newer coins. I'm not going to go into detail of what they call, but let's just say there's the Bitcoin and then there's the something that rhymes with Bitcoin, but starts with SH. So, so usually the Bitcoins of the world aren't impacted by the, their, um, you know, rhyming brethren, let's call it. But you know, there seems to be kind of some consensus that there was some impact, but if you kind of look at the broader trends, there's also been a major drawdown in, in the global equity markets over the same time period. Um, and that is something that, you know, that, that the big cryptos like the, the, you know, the ripples and bitcoins and ethereums of the world are highly correlated with. And that, that may or may not be cause for even more concern than 
what happens with some startup coin that someone lost with venture capital money? I mean, I'll, I'll grant you it wasn't a tiny coin. It was probably about $40 billion worth, but not, not at the same scale of like a Bitcoin or Ethereum. If you do look at the activity and the price levels, um, you do see a very, very heavy correlation with, with equity markets. And that's, that's a, su a subject for fair discussion. In fact, a lot of equity traders actually look at Bitcoin prices, let's say over the weekend when equity markets are closed and futures markets are closed. Um, they'll look at what Bitcoin's doing over the weekend, you know, especially lately with like, you know, the war in Ukraine and, and inflation and stuff like that to kind of get a hint of where equity markets are likely to open on Monday. So, so you see this heavy correlation and then you start wondering, well, okay, so besides being like an extended futures trading platform for equities, like do these coins offer something incremental? And I think that's an open question. Um, uh, I think, you know, long run, if all these coins end up doing is provide you with 24 hour ability to trade the stock market, I think, I think most people would agree agree that they've kind of undershot their potential on the on the other end of the spectrum you obviously have advocates who think this is a far more sophisticated form of currency than any of the reserve banks in the world currently use because it's decentralized it's you know in the case of bitcoin and some others it's not inflationary because because you know you have a limited ability to generate new coin um you know, and in the long run, it may be harder to to forge or to hack than than some some of the more traditional forms of currency. So that's, you know, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, you have the people who think this is going to be the future of currency. You know, what whether it's Bitcoin or something else is, is a subject for a different debate. But the fact that they're so heavily correlated with equities markets kind of hints at the fact that they haven't really fulfilled that potential yet, right? It's essentially people's um, kind of excess slosh money that they kind of move in and out of the crypto market, depending on what, what's happening with, with the risk levels and, you know, or perceptions of risk and, and where things are moving from an equity perspective. So I think that's something to keep a closer eye on. Like you're never going to be able to police some, some guy who, you know, dreamed up some some idea for new coin in his garage got some venture money launched a coin and, and the idea ended up failing right like you don't even want to be able to to mandate that away because when you mandate that away you also mandate away all the new innovations that you want to happen right but the, the bigger question of whether these things are going to actually perform their role as, as a global reserve currency or you know, some people call it a digital form of gold is, is uh, I think, currently a TBD. I would agree with that. And I think that you, again, raise a, an interesting point, um, which you see kind of, it gets touched on, but maybe doesn't get as much uh, discussion as it probably should. I, I do sometimes question the resilience of crypto that is sort of touted as the decentralized aspect of it. And everybody kind of thinks that it somehow is impervious to the same pressures that influence, as you noted, like the, the regular old stock market, right? And yet, like you have global events that like the COVID pandemic, there's the war in Ukraine you referenced, like that normally you do see some reaction in the stock market to those things. And then you see the same thing happening on some level in the crypto space, which as as you pointed out, that that means there's still a, a, enough of a connection there that 
whatever aspect of it that they're kind of hoping makes it the i guess the next generation of of currency like it's still it's not fully realized yet um i think you, you put that well and i i i also think that that view of crypto is kind of this <laughs> did you call it a slush fund or some, something like that you use like slush money like that kind of goes in and out of crypto it's not something that people are kind of full-on moving toward because as you said neat like not enough people understand really what they're doing uh, or what what supposedly makes it valuable um, there are those people out there that are that are kind of the the long-term view people who understand the underlying technology and and do see it as a as a really promising frontier but i think for most of the people that are i guess seduced by the what's supposed to be the egalitarian nature of it where you've got uber drivers like download coinbase and they're like we're gonna we're gonna get rich like they just you see these because there are enough of these highly publicized uh instances of people kind of making a bet that paid off that it kind of it starts to to tell people uh rightly or wrongly mostly wrongly i think that this is kind of a sure thing and you can just kind of buy any of these rhyme coins as you called them boaz and and you'll make your fortune um but it's obviously proving itself to be a lot more complex than that the other point here to, to think about is um so you, you can say like okay these things are essentially functioning as a kind of a proxy for equities or you can maybe call it a leveraged form of equities right because um you know, I actually ran the correlations once and it, it, it looks like, um, at least at the time that I ran it, there's about a four to one leverage ratio. So for every 1% change in the stock market, a currency like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum will move about 4%. So that's a pretty heavy lever heavily leveraged, um, you know, instrument to, to effectively, kind of what's happening now is to effectively play the stock market. But you can also ask, okay, so I don't want it to be that in the long run because we have enough ways to play the, to play the stock market, or or at least if if that's all it becomes, then I think you know it may have um, not lived up to its full potential. But then you can ask, well, how how would you want it to function, right? Like, what would you want it to do under different conditions? So, if you look back to kind of the original paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, I think the idea was. To, to have something that's not, you know, currency that's not controlled by the government and that retains its value um, regardless of conditions, in which case what you really want it to be in the long run, if it, if it kind of lives up to that idea, is you want it to be the, the kind of the ultimate inflation hedge, right? So like if I can use, you know, 0.1% of a Bitcoin to buy a barrel of oil today, I want to be able to use 0.1% of a Bitcoin to buy a barrel of oil a year from today. And so it kind of, you know, in times of, of modern inflation, maybe it, it, it stays the same relative to the, the world currencies, but in time of high inflation, you would ideally like it to see it increase relative to, to the world's big reserve currencies. And we're definitely not seeing that at this point. Some good reflections there, guys. I appreciate the uh, the input, and I know every time we talk about crypto on here, there I kind of wrap it up by saying, 
Uh, it's still so new and it's still early and there's there's a lot to to still kind of keep an eye on but it it remains true and i think that it's going to be it's going to remain true longer than uh we maybe think it takes a while for this stuff to to straighten out and i do wonder if by the end of it or, or if if it all stabilizes if you will see just kind of like your top four cryptos where right now there are so many different altcoins available i just wonder if if events like this will continue to happen and you'll eventually end up with right now the big ones are like you said bitcoin and ethereum uh, a few others um i just wonder if by the end of it that that's kind of what you'll have where it's like that's what the world of cryptocurrency will be is it is it goes from this wild west as i said earlier to something a little bit more constrained i suppose but I know we got to move on, uh, so I'm going to. Here's our closeout topic. We're not going to talk so much about the like the specific story that that kind of got me thinking about this. We've talked before about Elon Musk's. Uh, I keep getting confused on whether he's actually buying Twitter or like it's like he's going to buy it. Well, he's still thinking about it. He's going to buy. I don't know, but um, there's there's at least rumblings of uh, him. If he actually succeeds in doing this, one of the things that he'd like to do is reverse uh, what was formerly a lifetime ban on former President Trump. We're not going to talk about Trump on this podcast, but I do want to talk about the idea of social media companies using um, permanent bans at all. Do you, do you think that permanent bans on social media should be used sparingly? Um, or not at all. I'm curious to hear what you guys say about that. I, I'm definitely against the idea of a permanent ban because, firstly, I mean, uh, it's already being reversed. Looks like right. Um, so, and the part that you know, really, when I think about social media, is like, why? Why do like? Of course, they're private companies, so they can do whatever they want, right? If they want to ban someone, it's up to them. But just there are enough safeguards in the country around free speech, right? And, um, you know, allowing free speech and in case someone crosses a line, there's pretty clear uh, consequences, right? So why not just rely on the, on that whole framework to protect the general public, right? I don't understand why a private company needs to become an arbiter and decide what's good and what's not, right? So that's my my reaction to this, this sort of thing. And it, it's like, saying that it's you know it's like if you draw a parallel it's like telling trump that he can't speak if you had to ban him from talking right it just doesn't make any sense i do wonder about the idea of yeah a permanent ban being kind of like out there something people kind of use as like their nuclear option um but favoring more just like a, a temporary temporary silencing like come back when you've cooled down kind of thing as the preferred mode of enforcement there yeah so just to note i think just the fact that we're having this conversation um kind of puts in perspective why someone like musk would even offer 40 billion plus for for the twitter platform because you, you're not you know no one ever talks about oh donald trump was banned from msnbc or you know donald trump was banned from the new york times right like the fact that we're specifically talking about it with respect to twitter is interesting because it kind of lends validity to this idea of a global electronic town hall that 
that Musk and others have been talking about. So I think that part's very interesting. So it's, it's almost like a self-confirming um, debate here. With respect to free speech, um, you know, I mean, if you think of free speech as a concept, uh, I don't know if it, it was probably around before the Bill of Rights, but the Bill of Rights is where it was kind of fam famously made its, um, you know, its debut. The, the idea of free speech, much like the rest of the Bill of Rights and, and other parts of the Constitution, the idea of, of free speech is to protect the rights of the minority from encroachment by the majority, right? Like you never worry about the free speech for the majority because the majority will make their thoughts known um, unless you live in, in uh, one of these rogue states. So, um, so the idea of free speech is uh, a lot of it is protecting the rights of the minority from the majority. So then if you, if you kind of play that logic out, then by definition, you're never going to um, arrive at a, um, acceptable democratic standard for free speech, right? Like if, if you let the majority decide what free speech is acceptable and unacceptable, then by definition, you've already substantially eroded the very idea of free speech in itself, right? So, so, and I'm not sure people realize that, like there's, there's kind of a fundamental tension between free speech and democracy, like, like free speech in its original intent can sometimes piss off the majority and that's fine. Like that's part of what the, the idea is about the point is to make people angry is what i hear you saying i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> the point is to make people realize that being angry is not the worst possible outcome <laughs> ah, listen to that <laughs> on the other hand free speech is a is a right that that's granted to you relative to your government at least if, if you live in the u.s right so then there's the next layer of, of discussion, which is, well, Twitter isn't the government, it's a commercial platform. And the ultimate goal of any commercial platform is to make profit. So then the question, the next level of the question becomes, is Twitter justified in banning someone like Trump on the basis of profit making? So they could say, well, if, if we allow someone like this, and it, it creates enough, either real danger, perceived danger, or, or even pissing off enough of the public, then we're going to erode our, our eventual ability to to turn a profit so from a commercial perspective we're, we just have to ban him for that reason um so then the next question becomes well okay what's in the best interest of the platform's commercial commercial prospects um and then there you can kind of look at other historical examples of social media um you know whether it's like if you look in the early 2000s there was the whole um Facebook versus MySpace debate, right? So MySpace was actually the first like big commercially accepted social network, but uh, there was hardly any policing on the MySpace platform. And you had a lot of bad actors, you know, kind of stalking people and doing all sorts of weird stuff. And eventually a lot of people moved to Facebook because there was more effective policing of bad actors. So if you kind of look at the history of social media, I think, one one of the principles is you want to try to you want to try to do a, a good enough job of policing the bad actors but without you know without overly limiting um the rest of the population and what they're able to do that platform so it'll be interesting to see if that's the direction that twitter goes in well thanks guys i appreciate you very much and uh as always thank you for being being on here and contributing your thoughts i really do value them thanks nathan thanks nathan you too
That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice, or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson, and from all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest.